0: Just visit org slash subscribe and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. You would choose sides before the
1: Mass began. You either had the bell side or the book side. The Gospel book or the book itself was transferred to the left side of the altar. So there would be a kind of we call it a do do So the one server would go up, retrieve the book, come back down, and I think backing up down, if I can remember correctly, uh, this is a while ago, and then both servers would genuflect and the one would bring the book up to the left-hand side of the altar and the other one moved to the other side, which had the bells. So it was book or bells, and you had to decide before Mass started who got which. I think we like the bells better, so you got to ring the bells, you know.
2: The bells, the books, the do do around the altar, these are all features of the traditional Latin Mass. And it's how the Church celebrated the Eucharist for centuries. Until Vatican II. By and large, it was a time when people felt optimistic. And like, this was opening the windows and this was a new day. And that included the liturgy. For starters, the new Mass no longer had to be in Latin. It could be in the vernacular or the local language. And there were other big changes. The priest would face towards the congregation, and the whole thing would be a lot less elaborate, with a lot more participation from the people in the pews. We played
3: our guitars in church, and everybody felt more like we were part of the action. We weren't
2: watching something from far away. We're really really in it. But a small number of Catholics remained attached to the old rite and popes like John Paul II and Benedict XVI tried to accommodate them in an attempt to preserve the unity of the church. But in July of 2021, Pope Francis reversed course.
0: A movement of traditionalist Catholics are in an uproar. Pope Francis has significantly restricted traditional Pope
4: Francis just released a motu proprio, restricting the use of the Latin mass.
2: In this special deep dive episode of Inside the Vatican, we'll take you through the history behind this decision. And we'll talk about how liturgy became a lightning rod for a whole array of political issues. Then we'll unpack Pope Francis's decision, and hear how it's affected devotees of the Latin Mass. Finally, with a church that seems even more divided after this decision, the question remains – where do we go from here? I'm Colleen Deli, this is Inside the Vatican.
1: A traditional Latin mass is a mass that's said by a priest who is facing in the same direction as the people are facing. So you could say away from the people, but people who like that mass would prefer uh, to say facing in the same direction or facing the Lord. It's also, of course, completely in Latin. It's much more elaborate in its ritual and in its text. I'm John Baldovin and I'm a Jesuit priest. I teach liturgy and sacraments at the Boston College School of Theology and Ministry. I was very lucky to grow up in a parish that took the liturgy very seriously. It was a beautiful, beautiful church, what you'd call the old style. And the priests were very serious and very faithful. There was a certain beauty to it. There was a a lovely choreography to it. As an altar server, you had to learn lots of different things. It was much more elaborate and difficult than it is today.
2: This elaborate dance is what most Catholics know as the Latin Mass. And it's how Catholics worshipped for about 400 years, from the Council of Trent in 1570 up to Vatican II in the 1960s. Before Trent, there were about as many ways to celebrate the liturgy as there were parishes. Popes starting in the 4th century had worked to standardize some of the prayers in the parts of the Mass, like the Gloria, which was introduced in the 6th century, or the Eucharistic Prayer in the 7th century. But this wasn't exactly a smooth process. It was hard to get the text out to every corner of the church, and even harder to make sure everyone was following it. So you saw a lot of variation. The parts of the Mass were moved around. It was celebrated in French and Italian rather than Latin. And then, starting in the 10th century, priests began to add all kinds of flourishes, like extra prayers and readings and long lists of saints. But in the 16th century, a few things happened that make standardizing the Mass not only possible, but urgent. At this point, the Church's power is centralized in Rome, and the printing press has made disseminating texts much easier. But there's also the Protestant Reformation, The bishops meet at the Council of Trent and call on the Pope to make a series of reforms, including standardizing the Mass and doing away with the regional idiosyncrasies. And right after the Council, Pope Pius V approves the first unified Roman Missal, known as the Tridentine Rite or the Tridentine Latin Mass, because Trent, in Latin, is Tridentum. And that's the Mass we have for the next 400 years. But as history teaches us, Catholics can't resist a little ornamentation. Here's Father Baldwin again.
1: There were prayers that had been added on over the centuries, like the prologue, Chapter 1 to St. John's Gospel, was added on sometime in around uh, the middle of the Middle Ages.
2: By the 20th century, the liturgy was about the same as it was 400 years ago, with the exception of a few added prayers. But the world had changed a lot since the Middle Ages. So why was the Mass still in Latin?
3: Latin used to be the language of all kinds of public events, and the courts were in Latin, and the things of government were in Latin. It was the lingua franca of public life.
2: This is Rita Ferrone. She's a liturgical scholar who focuses on the reforms of Vatican II.
3: Eventually, all those things changed into vernacular languages, except the church, except the liturgy. So you've got a situation where fewer and fewer people really understood Latin in the pews and in the congregation.
2: In other words, Latin was being discontinued in public life everywhere except the Tridentine Mass. So when Vatican II gave permission to use modern languages in the liturgy, the shift away from Latin happened quickly, and Rita grew up precisely during this time of transition. I
3: learned all the responses to the Mass in Latin in first grade, and by the time of my first communion, we were speaking it in English.
2: What was the movement going into Vatican II, and why did they feel like they had to change the liturgy?
3: Wow. You ask a big question.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, a couple of things. On the positive
3: side, people began to know a lot more about history. And if you didn't study history very well or didn't have those historical sources available to you, you didn't really know how liturgy was in the ancient church or in the patristic era or things like that. So your assumption was liturgy was always like this, how it was in the Counter-Reformation, for example. And then when people found out that there were other ways to do this and that some of them were really wonderful, you know, and they kind of got to the heart of the faith, that that was an impetus toward reform. The other thing is that actually things like Latin had been changing over time and the church had not caught up with it. So you realize some of this stuff isn't immutable and then you find the pressure of, you know, we'd like people to hear these prayers and really understand them and not be following along from a distance like this is some sort of a magic situation.
2: A lot of liturgical debates begin with different claims to tradition, or what's the oldest way to celebrate Mass?
3: When people
1: say that the liturgy we're celebrating now is not traditional, they have a very limited understanding of of what tradition is. A little while ago, I was talking about the various aspects of the Mass that were so much more elaborate, right? The Reformers were going at it from a different angle, in some ways, like scraping the barnacles off of an old ship.
2: The Council studied the liturgies of the early Church and drew up what they called the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, which outlined their reforms. The biggest change, the one that affected everything else, was this.
1: Paragraph 14 of the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy, says that, and I'm not quoting exactly, but that the aim above all of the reform of the liturgy in the Council is to promote the full, conscious, and active participation of the people, which is their right, R-I-G-H-T, their right on the basis of their baptism, And there is a whole theology, right there.
2: In the Old Mass, there was a lot less participation from the congregation. They didn't have all the responses that we have now. And since the Eucharistic prayer was said in a low voice, facing away from the congregation, it was tough to know what was going on. Most people would just pray a rosary or do some other private devotion and look up when they heard the bells ring at the consecration. And that sent a message, whether it was intended to or not, that the Mass was something that the priest did, rather than the community. There was already a big movement towards changing that by the time of Vatican II. Starting in the late 1800s, bishops were putting together programs to teach people how to follow along with the Mass. And some of the congregational responses that they experimented with even became permanent after Vatican II.
1: So the Church is a story of continuity and discontinuity, just like all of life. (laughs) The Church is a story of both. The continuity is that baptism has always been central, right? So a baptismal ecclesiology says what constitutes us as Christians is far more our baptism than the various roles that we play in the church, no matter how important those roles are, without prejudice to the fact that we need priests, bishops, a pope, etc. What unites us as Christians is far more important than any of the differentiations. Now, that is still a struggle in the church, I'd have to say, honestly.
2: That understanding of the church meant that the liturgy became a lot more communal and easier to follow. For one thing, it was celebrated in the vernacular, in the native language of the people. And the prayers were now said loud enough to hear.
1: Another aspect, of course, the priest facing the people made a big, big impression on people. And it remains a fairly sensitive issue because the priest is not a TV actor, right? What's important is not the priest. What's important is the Christ who is the center of us.
2: And then, of course, there was the music.
1: They gave pride of place to Gregorian chant to the traditional chants of the church. But now other suitable music could be used, and that's where we're at today. So other suitable music can be traditional Protestant hymns, can be praise and worship music, can be a lot of the contemporary St. Louis Jesuits, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. right.
2: And by and large, people love the
3: changes. To tell you the truth, they were thrilled to have the Mass in English. There were, you know, some mixed feelings about redecorating the church. (laughs) You know, they took out the altar rail and some people were a little, you know, disappointed at that. But by and large, it was a time when people felt optimistic. And like, this was opening the windows and this was a new day. Now, not everybody had that
2: experience,
3: obviously, and I don't know, the bad press always gets more press than the good press.
2: After the break, bad press and the resistance to Vatican II.
1: The first of more than 5,000 people began
4: arriving in the tiny hamlet of Econ at dawn to attend the consecration service in a specially erected outdoor church. Many had traveled halfway across the world to be there. For them, a split with Rome had become inevitable.
2: The 82-year-old archbishop had made it clear that he would remain defiant. The pushback against Vatican II wasn't widespread, but it was immediate.
3: Well, Archbishop Lefebvre was the point person for this resistance.
2: Marcel Lefebvre was a French bishop who led the more conservative block of bishops during Vatican II.
3: And he did not accept the reforms of the liturgy, but he also didn't accept a lot of the teachings of Vatican II. And he had followers who gravitated to him. Then
4: the final act of defiance, the formal consecration of four bishops. To do this without Vatican approval is forbidden. Archbishop Lefebvre knew that from the moment he laid his hands on the first bishop's head, the break from Rome was inevitable.
3: And He established a base in Acon, Switzerland, and from his base in Acon, he gathered like-minded traditionalists.
2: After Vatican II, Lefebvre formed a group called the Society of St. Pius X, or SSPX for short, to celebrate the Old Mass in defiance of the council. But his resistance wasn't just about the Mass.
1: In some quarters, yes. The Society of Pius X, they have always basically rejected the council. Archbishop Lefebvre wanted to go back to the French monarchy before the French Revolution. Can I be flippant and say good luck with that?
2: Most of Lefebvre's followers didn't buy the whole monarchy thing. But they did reject other parts of Vatican too, like the council's teaching that God is at work in other religions. And then there were others who just wanted to celebrate the old mass that they'd grown up with. John Paul II was sympathetic to that latter group. He didn't want to see them enter into schism, which seemed to be where Lefebvre was headed. So in 1975, John Paul ordered Lefebvre to disband the society, which he refused to do. In the mid-1980s, the tension between the SSPX and the Vatican reached a boiling point. a in an effort to keep some of the Latin Mass-goers in the Church, John Paul gave an indult — a special permission — for some groups to celebrate the Latin Mass as long as they recognized the legitimacy of Vatican II's liturgical teachings. But Lefebvre and his priests insisted that they would not recognize the Council. And with Lefebvre now in his 80s, the SSPX was talking about ordaining their own bishops to continue his legacy, a move that would automatically excommunicate Lefebvre and those he ordained. The pressure was on. As a last-ditch effort before the ordination, John Paul ordered his right-hand man, Cardinal Ratzinger, to work out a deal with Lefebvre. He would recognize SSPX as a religious order in communion with the church, give them permission to celebrate the pre-Vatican II Mass and authorize the ordination of their bishops, as long as they promised loyalty to the Pope, recognized the legitimacy of the new Mass, and committed to a non-polemical study of Vatican II. And Lefebvre signed it. But after a sleepless night, He called Ratzinger back. He was revoking his signature. Rejecting the council was more important to him than communion with the Pope. Soon after, he ordained four bishops, automatically excommunicating himself and driving the Society of St. Pius X into schism. The consecrations had been carried out explicitly against the Pope's will, and Rome had
4: no choice but to expel the offenders from the church.
1: So this was an act of defiance. It was an act of defiance. But at the same time, however, Pope John Paul II understood that there were many people who were attracted, or a number of people who were attracted to this liturgy for genuine reasons, genuine spiritual reasons.
2: John Paul didn't want to drive Lefebvre's followers into schism just for wanting the pre-Vatican II Mass. So in 1988, after Lefebvre was excommunicated, John Paul set up an office in the Vatican dedicated to keeping Lefebvre's followers in communion with the Pope while also respecting their desire to celebrate the Old Mass. When Cardinal Ratzinger became Pope Benedict in 2005, he invited two of the SSPX bishops to his vacation home. They told him they would consider reintegrating if Benedict would allow any priest who wanted to celebrate the pre-Vatican II Mass to do so without permission from his bishop. And Pope Benedict conceded to their request, to the surprise of many, In summer 2007, he issued Simorum Pontificum. It said that if a community wanted their priests to celebrate the Latin Mass, the priest should not object, and no approval from the bishop or from the Vatican was needed. In the end, the SSPX didn't rejoin the church. But Samorum Pontificum did bring a large number of SSPX members back into Vatican-sanctioned Latin masses, and thus back into communion with Rome. In that way, Benedict saw this gesture as a step towards unifying the Church. It was a unity and diversity model. But the reality didn't end up so rosy.
4: I'm Jonathan Colbreth. I'm a lifelong attendant of the Latin Mass.
2: Jonathan, how old are you? I'm 26. I'm asking because, you know, Samorum Pontificum didn't happen until 2007, but you said you've been attending Latin Mass your whole life, so wh- what was it before that?
4: Prior to Samorum Pontificum, there were a number of priestly societies who were given an indulge by Pope John Paul II. We have the Fraternity of St. Peter and the Institute of Christ the King, which are these alternative orders of priests who are devoted to celebrating the Latin Mass exclusively, but with the full recognition and approval of the Pope. And I grew up in one of those parishes.
2: Jonathan and his family converted to Catholicism in the late 90s, when he was four. So he's seen the changes in the traditionalist community firsthand, and how the Latin Mass became tied up in a lot of other political issues here in the U.S.
4: So in the traditionalist movement, there's always been some dissatisfaction with the way things have gone in the church after Vatican II, and always been some kind of dissatisfaction with how the papacy has governed the church and regulated things like the liturgy or even its doctrinal contributions since the council. I think in recent years, it acquired a very Americanist and libertarian flavor, even libertarian in the sense of the rhetoric of criticism towards the papacy started to get mixed up in all these other types of political rhetoric, which it didn't used to be mixed up with. Like even the Society of St. Pius X, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, who was very critical of all the popes, you know, in his lifetime, he never turned in that direction exactly. And he always believed that only the papacy could save the church. And he said that explicitly. But there's a sector of traditionalists now who have sort of merged their rhetoric towards the Pope with another kind of political rhetoric that I think partly comes from American politics.
2: (laughs) He said it's gotten even more heated over the last few years, after Pope Francis was elected and American politics became even more polarized.
4: I mean, the election of Pope Francis was a sort of first one, a small one. The 2016 elections were a big one. The McCarrick scandal and Archbishop Viganò was another big one. Vigano's involvement in the QAnon event was a huge contributor to this new energy in the traditionalist movement and all the politics around COVID, which I won't get into, but all of these things, it was just like one thing after another affected the traditionalist movement and accelerated certain trends or certain tendencies that they'd always had and exacerbated them and turned it into something that I couldn't really be okay with anymore.
2: That's not to say that Jonathan has left the Latin Mass. He still considers himself a traditionalist, but a traditionalist who likes Pope Francis and believes in loyalty to the Pope.
4: I think Pope Francis's teaching, especially his social teaching, is actually a revival of the Catholic tradition and of traditional Catholic doctrine.
2: That's part of why it was so painful for him when Pope Francis made the decision to overturn Samorum Pontificum this summer.
0: Pope Francis is cracking down on what he says is a divide within the Catholic has Church. He issued a new law which requires bishops to approve celebrations mass. of the Old Latin what Mass. What exactly does this
2: mean? Last year, Pope Francis sent out a survey to bishops asking how the Latin Mass is used in their dioceses. The Pope said their responses revealed, quote, "...a situation that preoccupies and saddens me, and persuades me of the need to intervene." He said that Benedict's vision had been ignored, and that his and john paul ii's generosity in offering the latin mass had been quote exploited to widen the gaps reinforce the divergences and encourage disagreements that injure the church and expose her to the peril of division rita Ferrone, one of the liturgists that we heard from shared a story of what that's looked like
3: a friend of mine a priest who is in touch with a number of different dioceses in the midwest that it was a diocese where the bishop brought in some priests again who specialized in the extraordinary form because there's a priest shortage. He needed more priests in his diocese. He thought, well, this could help us out. But there wasn't very much call for the extraordinary form. There was only one or two places that wanted to have the Mass in that form. And so he said, well, listen, could you help us out by celebrating Mass in the ordinary form? And they refused. They wouldn't do it.
2: Rita wrote an article for Commonweal Magazine recently in which she said that the divisions around the Old Mass weren't just a matter of lace and Latin.
3: There's a lot of stuff there. There's a longing for the return of Christendom. There's an illiberalism and rejection of democracy. There's the wild conspiracy theories like Archbishop Carlo Maria Viganò, who says there's a gay conspiracy with tentacles everywhere strangling the church, or Cardinal uh, Raymond Burke who told people that the vaccines for coronavirus are a Marxist plot. There's a fortress mentality in all of these things.
2: How did that come to be tied to the mass? Well, it's a, got
3: a long history of that. Catholic traditionalism has been the umbrella for a lot of ultra-conservative movements. The reestablishment of the monarchy in France, the suppression of indigenous peoples in the Amazon. There was a, an organization that held counter-protests during the Amazon Synod, was uh, being funded by a group that was traditionalist because they felt that private property was the foundation of civilization, and that the indigenous peoples were too communitarian. So this, you know, has had a long history that predates it.
2: Those are the kind of divisions that trouble Pope Francis. As a solution, Francis shifted authority back to the bishops. He banned them from approving new Latin mass communities, and said they need to review each priest and community that already celebrates it to make sure they don't deny Vatican II's reforms. And any new priest ordained after the document came out has to get a second approval from Rome to celebrate the Latin Mass. This is a big change from Benedict's rule. And then there's another guideline, which bishops have interpreted in very different ways. It says that Latin Masses shouldn't happen in parish churches. Some bishops have taken that to mean that they can keep most of their Latin Masses going, because most happen in churches operated by religious orders, what are called personal parishes. Others say, no, those are still parishes, and so the Latin Mass shouldn't be allowed there. For Jonathan, who works at a parish school that wanted to start celebrating the Latin Mass in a diocese that just got a new bishop, the future of their liturgies looks uncertain.
4: I woke up that morning and I checked my phone first thing, and that was the first news I saw, and my heart sank. It's a very mixed set of emotions. The traditional Latin Mass has been central to my life. I certainly hope that the Latin Mass will continue in some places, especially where the bishops see fit to interpret Pope Francis's directives in the most generous way possible. I welcome that and and hope for it.
2: So the question becomes, with a church that's deeply divided and that feels even more divided after Pope Francis's crackdown on the Old Mass, how do we move toward church unity from here?
1: I don't know the answer to how exactly. This is going to pan out. One reason is the huge variable here is the bishops themselves and how seriously they take what is clearly the pope's desire. Many of the bishops oppose him. It's got to be said, clearly, it seems to me, he wishes the traditional uh, Latin rite not to grow, but gradually to diminish with time. But he also clearly wants the church to have the church's liturgy. What's going to happen? I can't tell you for sure. Will there be some breakaway? I think that's inevitable.
2: Jonathan isn't going to be in that breakaway group. He wants the Latin Mass to continue, but he's also thinking about what he wants to happen if the Latin Mass is phased out.
4: Another part of the solution, and I think Pope Francis himself gestures towards this in the motu proprio, is to attend more carefully to the celebration of the the Novus Ordo itself.
2: Novus Ordo means New Order. It's what some people call the post-Vatican II Mass.
4: Because I think it's undeniable, and he practically admits it, that in many places the Novus Ordo is not celebrated according to the vision of the Council, even.
2: Father Baldovin agrees that we could bring some of the old in with the new.
1: Part of the difficulty of the reform is that we haven't learned to discipline ourselves correctly. There's far too much eccentricity or idiosyncrasy in my opinion. So if I can give you an example, I presided and preached at a mass yesterday, parish mass, and it was the Assumption of Our Lady. So my beginning of the mass would be, today we join the entire church in celebrating one of the great feasts of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Let us then call to mind our sins, etc. Right? Instead of a very chatty thing like Boy, we've had a heat wave the last couple of days. It's nice this morning that the weather is a lot fresher. That's a warm up act. It's not an introduction to the liturgy. It's not liturgical.
2: But Rita doesn't think that the new Mass needs to borrow anything more from the old in order to be done well.
3: So Pope Francis' advice is just excellent advice. You know, get to know the new rites, pray the Mass, study the Mass. The reform did not break our tradition. It continued it. It just continued it in its own particular way, and we need to appreciate that.
2: And if someone prefers Mass in Latin, parishes should start offering the Vatican II Mass in Latin. That's still the new rite, with the priest facing the people and lots of communal participation, just in a different language.
3: I think there could be the same time and place where you used to have the extraordinary form, you could have a Latin form of the Reformed rites. No. What's to keep you from having a scola that sings chant at that Mass? You can still do that. Those are things that are entirely possible, but you've got to talk to your priests. You've got to be part of one community and just keep insisting on that. It is one community. And we have a lot of models for that because, for instance, with multicultural parishes, you know, we do have communities of communities, and there are some people who are speaking Tagalog, and there's some people who are speaking Spanish, and there's some people who are speaking Creole, or whatever it is. And yet, they consider themselves all members of the one parish, and they're all part of the Catholic Church, and nobody is looking down on anybody else, ideally, right? Or saying we're the true ones, and you people who are speaking Tagalog are not.
2: I asked Jonathan what he would like to see in celebrations of the new Mass.
4: I would say first... Pray the first Eucharistic prayer more than the second one, because the first Eucharistic prayer is the Roman canon. It's the most ancient part of the whole Roman rite. But also music, you know, the the Second Vatican Council emphasized the Church's musical patrimony, which is still Gregorian chant and Latin polyphony and all these things. You hear hardly any of that in most parishes. And that has, in the words of Sacrosanctum Concilium, Pride of place, or a more literal translation, first place in the liturgy. It doesn't have first place in most liturgies that I go to anymore. And then there are a host of other like smaller things. Use incense more, use bells more, you know, raise money to make your churches more beautiful. So those are a few examples. Maybe use Latin a little more. I won't be triggered too much if you use English. <laughs> um,
2: you might be triggered by our Latin pronunciation.
4: <laughs> <laughs> As a Latin teacher, maybe I would...
2: But of course, the division here is about a lot more than the liturgy. There's the resistance to the Pope, to Vatican II, the politics, the conspiracy theories, the lobbying groups. None of that goes away just by bringing people together into one parish. But bringing people together could be a first step. The second step is getting them to talk to each other. And that's how Jonathan sees his role going forward, no matter what happens.
4: Practically speaking, it means I need... I want to be an evangelist, I suppose. I want to tell people joyfully and excitedly about why the things that they love, whether you love the teaching of Pope Francis in Kirida Amazonia, for example, or whether you love the Latin Mass, why these things cohere, and why if you see their coherence, that new understanding can be transformative for your whole spiritual life. I think the only way to Reconciliation is to practice what you preach, (laughs) or at least to preach what you believe. I wouldn't be okay with just sort of keeping it all in myself and and shutting out the conflicts. My personal sort of reconciliation that I I achieve in myself can only be achieved by, by sharing it.
2: Thank you so much for tuning into this special Deep Dive episode, the first of our season of Inside the Vatican. If you want to support our work on the show, the best way to do that is by getting a digital subscription to America Magazine. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks! Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Sound engineering by Frank Tucson. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. You can find more Vatican news and analysis from America Media at americamagazine.org. And for more from the guests that you heard on our show today, check out our show notes. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll be back next week with our regular episodes with Vatican correspondent Gerard O'Connell. See you then.
0: Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture?